Sometimes I wish we could hit the refresh button on our Christian path. You know, just boop, because this one really needs it. It does. This is a tough scripture. I had a hard time saying thanks be to God for this scripture because it's tough. This one really needs that refresh button. So while I can't do that, I can, with you this morning, church, try to give us a fresh look at this text from the Gospel of Matthew. I'm asking the ushers now to pass out a sheet of paper that has two optical illusions on it. I think most of you have seen one, if not 30, of these things at some point. Trust me, if you haven't, Google optical illusion and you'll get more than you ever wanted to know and it will give you a migraine. So I just printed two for you. Do we have some from the choir? I've got some in my book. Hang on. I have some right here. We have plenty more, so they'll come up. So what I'm asking you to do once you get this is just to take a look at it Notice it. If you want to, be a little weirded out by it because it is a little weird to see this. And notice as you look at them how your perception of the image is changing. That's all I want you to do. How is your perception? How are you seeing this differently? Because the image itself is not changing, right? We know that about an optical illusion. It's not changing. It is what it is. But how we perceive it is shifting and changing. And that's disconcerting. So take a look. I had never seen the elephant one before. That one kind of was like, whoa, how did that happen? I mean, I still don't really get how they do that, but. Looking at an optical illusion is the best way that I can describe how I'm approaching our text this morning. Because the text itself isn't changing. And I don't want to change it. However, I want us to work together to perceive the text and what it is saying to us differently than our tradition often has taught it. So I thought I would start us off with this exercise to kind of get us out, out of our head and in our head a little bit more or in a different way to give us an example of how we can see something and how our perception changes, but the thing itself is not changing. Today, more than ever, how we approach and how we process scripture is crucial to our mission, to our health, the health of the body of Christ, and to our remaining true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. For while our Christian tradition has etched a path of deep good, it has also etched a path that some would, some would describe as downright evil. It is true that our tradition has been one of righteousness for the sake of Christ truly saving lives and bringing health to communities across the globe. 
And it is also true that our tradition has also scorched a horrendous path of brimstone and fire, ransacking entire peoples and cultures and scorching the earth in the name of Christ. This is true as well. And this morning, I'm not here to debate the merits of the Christian religion or actually of any religion. But the gospel text from Matthew brings up a particular understanding in our tradition on which I really do wish we could hit the reset button. Over the century, our tradition has carved out helpful and meaningful practices for sacramental orders such as baptism and communion, for life milestone rituals, marriage and death. Our tradition has nurtured grounding spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting and pilgrimage, meditation. However, over the years, the Christian tradition, and specifically the American Protestant Christian tradition, has also established a particular way of understanding the Christian journey. And this particular way has deeply impacted how we read scripture and how we interpret the Bible. You see, for many, the Christian journey is a linear one. A linear one with a very specific end goal. There's a starting point, some milestones along the path, and there's an end point, and then a hereafter. Very linear. It's been understood and explained sort of like this. Birth, life, good and bad, death, heaven or hell. And this has certainly been the way it's been introduced to me. It was certainly the way it was taught to me, implied or directly. And it's certainly the way when I have conversation with you that I hear you understand this Christian journey, this life, this linear path. That we are born, and if we're lucky enough that we get the power of choice, we live out our lives making decisions how to go about this thing called life. And then we die. And after death comes this time of judgment, which if Jesus loves us, if we live the right kind of life, still figuring out what that is, if we have enough of the right kind of oil, if we stay alert and ready at all times, we will get to go to heaven. Our scripture emphasizes the certainty of Jesus' second coming at any time. Speculators abound. Full-page ads in the USA Today announce Jesus' imminent return. Over the course of seasons and years, this goes on. Thousands of pastors received a booklet citing 88 reasons why Jesus would return on Halloween night. Happened just a few years ago. He didn't, but he's coming, so be ready. This is how the Christian life has been taught and explained for many centuries in American churches. Live the good life, make the right choices all the time, and keep making them because God is coming at any minute and God will judge. Or because once you die, you will be judged. And then you will go to heaven or hell based on the choices you made while you were alive. And based on those choices, you will be in or you will be out. And out, friends, is a very bad place. Birth, life, death, heaven or hell. Now, even though through our lives, this sort of linear lifeline is how it's been taught to me and to many of you, after a lot of reading and prayer and study, I'm here to tell you, oh church, that I just don't see it that way. 
And after a lot of conversations and living life with you these past six and a half years, you who struggle to make good choices and holy choices day in and day out, you who make sacrificial choices with your lives and your time and your wallets for God's people and to usher in God's kingdom. I read this text and I just don't trust that the author of, the, of Matthew was saying that either. Nor was the author of Matthew teaching this linear lifeline to the church of his day because that's not what Jesus was teaching. Because that's not how God's timetable works. So yeah, I wish I could hit that refresh button on this one. You see, this text in Matthew is pretty clearly an allegory where characters and props stand in for certain people or truths. In this story, we have these ten maidens hanging out, waiting for the bridegroom with lamps containing varying levels of oil. Meaning we have the church waiting for Jesus with varying degrees of engagement on their path with Christ. The important thing in this text isn't the descriptions of foolish or wise, nor the fact that the maidens fall asleep waiting for Jesus, nor even that the door is shut on some of the maidens at the end. You see, the only characteristic distinguishing the maidens, the church, is the amount of oil in their lamps. And in the Jewish tradition, oil is a metaphor for righteousness or good deeds. You see, the church that enters the kingdom together with Jesus is the church that is actively committed to and engaged in perpetrating God's righteousness on earth. This isn't a foreboding tale of knowing when to be ready, a warning tale that we should stay alert and awake for the second coming of Christ. This is a faithful parable from the early followers of Jesus, retold in allegorical form, trying to help us see that a life following Jesus isn't a linear birth, life, death, heaven, or hell, where everything we do is done to earn us a spot in heaven and that everything we do needs to be influenced by the fear or with the anxiety that God could just pop up at any time. This faithful parable is trying to illustrate for us that a life following Jesus entails living out the love that God has for us all the time. With every person in every time. The Christian tradition has given us much, but it hasn't given us an accurate read of this particular text. You see, here we are learning not about the fear we should have for the mistakes we have made, here we are learning about living the Christian life or the life that follows Jesus with tenacity and excitement and faithfulness and joy. Discipleship, living a life, walking with Jesus isn't a straight line life that's spent making choices based on what if God is watching or what if I die tomorrow. It's a life full of misfires and ups and downs circles and switchbacks and reversals and do-overs. It's about going deeper, as deeply as we can, with Jesus at every step. And sometimes that, sometimes that is scary. But not because we're being judged, 
because we are drawing closer to who God is and who God is in us. Our lives walking with Jesus aren't straight lines at all. How can they be? It's about living life right now for God and with Jesus. And God is always on the move. Have you seen the big yard or the library recently? God is on the move, calling us, urging us to a bigger life. A life that includes more, a life that loves more with wider open hearts and wider open minds and doors. And it is through our very lives of turns and reversals and switchbacks that we learn together about how deeply we are loved and how God's love only grows. It is through this love that we learn how to listen more closely to all of God's people, those similar and those different from us. It is through this love in the here and the now, not in some far-off post-life time zone, that we are at work filling our lamps with oil so we can burn brightly for the world. Friends, church, we were put here to use our gifts to shower God's love on each and every single human being and each and every living entity that we encounter. It's not about saving all that up to keep the door open at the end. This parable isn't about when to be ready. It's about faith in action. It isn't about whether God or Jesus lets some folks in the door or knows us. The door is open to us all the time. The door is open right now. God and Jesus know us by our beautiful selves that God created to help one another and to help God's world be a loving place for all peoples. This parable isn't about some people denying access to the kingdom because that access isn't possible to give to anyone. It's extant all the time. We can't give our faith to someone. That's not possible. Just as we can't do someone else's good deed. And we certainly can't experience the transformative power of living a life of righteousness and compassion, mercy on someone else's behalf. We have to do that on our own. That's discipleship. You see, we need to hit refresh on this text because it's not about scaring us into doing the right thing for fear of judgment or being left behind just as living a life following Jesus Christ isn't about standing ready and alert at all times it's about participating participating in a life that is spent working to know that we are loved that might sound a little odd but there are days that it takes work for me to know that I'm loved. It's about participating in a life spent working to share that we are all loved. Living a life with Jesus right here, right now, as we do it in tandem, as we do that as church, as we do that with God's people everywhere, at every age, at every time, we will all feast at the heavenly banquet in the here, in the now, 
and in the evermore. How we perceive this passage and how we live it out today is who we are. Today, more than ever, how we approach and process scripture is crucial to our mission, to the health of the body, and to our remaining true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, I got my lamp, and I've got some oil, and I'm ready to feast at the banquet with each of you, with all of you today, right now. Let's go. Amen.